This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Jack Conforti. He is a documentary filmmaker, author, and researcher. We are in dialogue today about his new book, The Stolen Narrative of the Bulgarian Jews and the Holocaust published by Roman and Littlefield 2021. It's an honor to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life had the greatest impact on the adult you would later become? Um, I was born in Tel Aviv in the mid-50s, and that's where I grew up. I think my life was pretty sheltered, so I don't think I have any major childhood events that that uh, helped for, uh, decide how I will be or, or help me f- become who I am. I think most of my uh, formative experiences were as an adult, as a relatively young person, once I left uh, Israel, that's where I started gathering experiences that were new unusual, sometimes difficult, having to live as an immigrant, all kinds of other learning, a language that I couldn't speak. I lived in Germany for seven years, and it was a a difficult and formative period. What inspired you to research and write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Well, I... I was interested originally in comedy, and I was a director of comedy. Uh, but And my parents were very close to me and were very much uh, involved in my studies and were very much interested to do uh, film work with me. When they retired, I went to study film and television. Both my parents were architects. And so once they retired and I lived in Germany, they would come and visit me and we would do little comedies together. And then one day they said, you know, there's one story you need to uh, you need to make a film about or need to tell. And that's how we survived the Holocaust. And that's kind of started my interest in the subject. And uh, first my, you know, I, I was still a comedy scriptwriter. I had to transform uh, into a documentarian. And then once I started researching and collecting, I could not stop. So I made uh, three films. The third film I just completed yesterday. 
And uh, then the films, the films was always, you know, you create a, a, a piece, it's like a mosaic or it's like a puzzle of many, many pieces. So you always uh, feel like, as a filmmaker, I felt if I put the pieces where they belong, I did my work well. But uh, not everyone understands the connection between the pieces. They just look at the at the picture of the finished picture of the of this puzzle, and I felt that I uh, failed the subject. That I have understood a lot more than I was able to tell in a movie, and so uh, I felt the book was something that. Uh, helped me put down everything I understood about the Bulgarian Jewish experience and that the films were just came too short in being able to address the detail, the complexity uh, of the subject. The story of the Bulgarian Jews uh, has been taken over by state propaganda. There were... Uh, there were 11,343 Jews that Bulgaria deported to the German authorities in order to be annihilated. And uh, part of the population was, um, was not deported because of resistance and because of uh, the fact that the secret deportations were revealed and then people managed to stall to stall them. But uh, what is mostly focused is on the positive part of the story that 48,000 people did not die. And then the people who were killed were wiped out of the statistics. And so that somehow the whole story is always colored in positive, in positive, even though there is also a negative to it. And uh, I just wanted to um, tell the narrative of the Bulgarian Jews and not that from Bulgaria, from official people, they will tell us our narrative. And there's this attempt from Bulgarian officials to try and tell the story with a narrative that is totally untruthful, that creates uh, heroes out of perpetrators and things of that nature. So I'm, I'm, I feel like the Dutch boy with a finger in a wall for a while now, trying to fight the Holocaust denial in Bulgaria and Bulgaria's role in the Holocaust. What are the general themes in your book? Can you tell us about your book's core message and argument? I basically, the main message was to try and tell Jewish stories. I have done oral histories with 100, over 150 uh, Bulgarian Jews and righteous Gentiles and others. And I felt that their story was not told because it was all the time taken over by state propaganda. And there was really not the voice of the victims was taken away from them. And so I felt that the, the, we need to tell a Jewish narrative and not a narrative that is uh, Bulgarian. And I felt that we need to um, expose all these stories that are not known. You cannot, you know, when you research an archive, you cannot find always all the answers in the archives. 
war crimes are not always documented. War crimes, you have to find testimonies of people who saw things that there is no documentation of. So this is mainly the issues that are uh, of a concern. And I'd like to have a I'd like to have a conversation rather than 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 uh, anything that is not uh, developing in an organic way. Because I'm if I'm feeling that, and I understand that you want to do this interview and you're very nice and very kind, and so I am trying to be. But if I feel that there is like no player on the other side of the ping pong table. I feel uh, I feel strange. Thank you for your feedback. I apologize. Don't apologize. Just try and try and uh, establish this the, this conversation between us because uh, otherwise I'm not a good I'm not a good storyteller if you're not if if it's not working well. Can you tell us about the deportations of Bulgaria's Jews? Where were they deported to? Germany uh, and Bulgaria were on the same side at World War One, and Bulgaria have lost some territories to its neighbors following the Balkan Wars and World War One. These territories were uh, something that Bulgaria craved to return, and Bulgaria's policies uh, in the thirties. From the time actually Hitler came to power, the Bulgarian allied itself and aligned itself, the Bulgarian regime was Nazi Germany. In 1934, there was a, a, a coup d'etat, and following it, uh, all the governments, uh, all the parties were canceled, were not allowed to run, and people were elected to the parliament as individuals rather than representative of a party that weakened the parliament and made the king totally in charge. During these times, Bulgaria developed a dependency on, on Germany. Some 70% of the imports and the exports were going to Germany. And then the military uh, support and the military training of people was all in German uh, hands. So uh, Bulgaria was invested in, in the German side with the hope to return those territories. Uh, the Jews were the easiest thing to give in return. So Bulgaria it was took an active an active role in, in in legislating anti-Jewish legislation before they joined the 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 three power pact, the tripartite, and uh, the Bulgarian involvement in the final solution was voluntary. It was voluntary and was something that was done as a as a cynical, opportunistic choice, and not necessarily out of big hatred. Um. There was not a very widespread anti-Semitism in Bulgaria as in other countries that were maybe more Catholic in in, in Europe. Uh, and so there was pretty good relationship between Jews and non-Jews in Bulgaria and Jews were very integrated in the country. So 
affected Jews and Bulgarians were friends and close, the Jewish community was able to find its friends in different places, in the church, in the civil society, and to be able to uh, try to fight the anti-Jewish laws or try to find protection. But once also the deportation plans became became uh, became known, it was difficult to stop the resistance to it. Why is the history of the Holocaust in Bulgaria poorly known? Why is it not widely researched in Holocaust studies? In your perspective, why is it obscure relative to other regions of the Holocaust? First of all, um, well, it's a Bulgaria was not an occupied country; it was an allied country. So, if we try to if we try to compare it to other to other uh, Nazi allies, we need to compare it to Italy, to maybe Hungary, uh, Romania. Maybe Slovakia. Uh, the problem is mostly accessibility due to language. The documents are in Bulgarian. It's a, it's a language that there's only five or six million people that speak. The Jewish community in Bulgaria was a teeny community of 50,000 uh, people. Um, so the the it's a little esoteric, and there's very few Jews there. So we obviously in Poland there were three million Jews. So we hear a lot about, and there's a lot more people who are interested in their history, in their family history. They have a connection, and the connection usually makes the interest. the The issue of accessibility was was major, and then. Uh, the way how the story was manipulated from the start. Uh, already in 1944, already in 1944, after the Russians marched in and there was a Bulgarian government uh, headed by Kimonov, uh, the new government asked the Jewish community or the people from Nebrit in Bulgaria to write Nebrit in the US and see if they can intervene in behalf of Bulgaria because Bulgaria was afraid that they're going to lose territories to Greece for their participation in the war on the German side. And at that time, the Jewish community helped and wrote a letter in which some phrases, I think, were drafted, like, there was no Holocaust in Bulgaria, that there were more Jews in Bulgaria after the war than before the war, and uh, that not even one Jew died on Bulgarian soil. These three phrases are, are totally un, un, untruthful, <coughs> but they became somehow known, and then they were also resonated during the Eichmann trial and somehow people gotten used to these to these uh, stories. The, tech, the attempt was to try and make in Bulgaria to try and give credit for the fact that not all the Jews were deported to either the king or the head of the communist party. The the heroic invention was too big for regular people to be the heroes, so it needed some kind of a superhero. So either the general uh, 
the, no, the chairperson of the Communist Party or the king were in charge of the rescue of the Jews. And there was always a question in Bulgarian politics, who saved the Jews? A question that is extremely manipulative and uh, basically uh, manipulated because it assumes that all the Jews were saved. It assumes that there was an act of heroic rescue that saved them and that it was a one kind of a time thing and then the, all, all the Jews survived. And so not all the Jews survived. Bulgaria deported some of the Jews uh, it, in its uh, territory and it tried to deport all of them. It just did not succeed. So these are basically the the the, the these are the issues that keep resonating from Bulgarian officials all over the world will tell you how Bulgaria is wonderful and how Bulgarians are better than other people because they saved the Jews. But it's all kind of a trickery and, and people don't understand the real truth. That's the main thing. For me, it was important with the book to first define our identity, who are the Bulgarian Jews? And the unique thing about Bulgaria is that it was uh, not just Bulgaria, but the whole Balkan and the Ottoman Empire was a place where it was a melt, a Jewish melting pot where Jews of four different uh, cultures have uh, lived together and have merged into a Sephardi culture. So this was very important to define who these people are, how they came there, and then their lives and, and how they have uh, been, what were the relationship in Bulgarians and Jews prior to the war, and then the effects of the war. There's also the people that Bulgaria deported and uh, not much of them was done. Uh, was was actually told. The king of Bulgaria, the myth trying to make him as a rescuer, was basically tries to also use the death of the king. He died from a heart attack on August 28, 1943. But Bulgarian propaganda tried to make him a martyr as if he died because Hitler poisoned him because he did not hand over the Jews. And by him being a martyr, he is the victim and not the people he deported as the victims. So by making the king a, a rescuer, we are, we are hiding the victims of his uh, pro-Nazi policies. What was Jewish like? life in Sofia like before 1939? Can you describe its history and sociology? Well, Jews in, um, Jews in Sofia were the biggest uh, Jewish group in the country. They were half of the population. There were 25,000 Jews. It's not a very huge uh, community. It was pretty, uh, it was heterogeneous about the, the, I would say the roots of all the people were heterogeneous, but as, as a community, they were a homo, homogeneous uh, community. Um, Jews were not involved in state affairs. Jews were, very few Jews were in the Bulgarian army. 
uh, three of them rose to the level of being uh, colonels. That's as, as high as they could get in the ranking. There were a lot of poor Jews in Bulgaria. <laughs> uh, there was a Jewish community called Yutch Bunar, a Jewish neighborhood, which was very, uh, uh, really a very poor neighborhood in which Jews and Roma people and poor Bulgarian lived very close in reasonable, good relationship. There was no ethnic tensions. Um, and there was middle, middle class. There were Jews who were professionals, pharmacists, doctors, uh, lawyers, but many, many Jews who were just workers. Some had small businesses and maybe a couple of rich people. But Bulgarian Jews were not a class as in maybe other places. How many Bulgarian Jews perished in the Holocaust? What is the accurate estimate? There, okay, when we say Bulgarian Jews, it kind of like colorize everyone, but let me explain this. Bulgaria has annexed a territory that was um, given to it by Germany. Germany used Bulgarian soil to attack Yugoslavia and, and Greece, and their forces did take over these territories and then gave Trace and Macedonia to Bulgaria, and Bulgaria annexed those territories and started transferring its own population there and create basically a campaign of ethnic cleansing against the local population of Greek people. And 100,000 Greek people cleared that area and Bulgarian settlers went in there. The Jews in these territories were also under Bulgarian control, they were forced to have the Jewish to wear the Jewish star that the Bulgarian Jews had. They were taken to labor camps, and they had the same restrictions as the Bulgarian Jews. This happened in 1941, and in 1942, the Bulgarian uh, statistical almanac is counting the Jews of the Bulgaria as being 63,000 of them, which is the Jews who lived inside Bulgaria and the Jews in those new territories that were annexed. Bulgaria planned the deportation of these 63,000 people. There is a document from November 1942 that counts up the, these groups and also details some stories and numbers about many Jews, about 4,000 Jews who were expelled from Bulgaria and pushed into no man's land between Bulgaria, Turkey, and Greece just at the outset of World War II. So Bulgaria counts the number of the Jews as having first 52,000, then 4,000 were pushed away, so 48 have remained, and now is the occupied territories it's 63,000. And the Commissar for Jewish Affairs is planning to deport them in three stages. First, the Jews from the newly acquired uh, provinces, then the Jews of the big cities, and then the Jews living in the small cities. These are the three stages of the deportation that the Commissar outlines. 
the deportation, uh, because it was not secret, it got some resistance. And then the deportation, the first wave of deportation was supposed to be 20,000 people. About 12,000 were deported and 8,000, their deportation was stalled by resistance from Bulgarian politics, church, and, and others. Further attempts to deport those Jews uh, were not very successful, although they were all the Jews of Sofia were pushed into as refugees into the provinces as a first stage of being deported from those provincial ghettos to, the, to extermination, but that did not happen somehow, this second part. So Bulgaria all in all deported 11,343 people. Bulgaria allowed much earlier uh, Germany to deport Bulgarian Jews who were under Nazi occupation in other places in Europe, in France, in Germany, in Austria, and there's 171 Jews, Bulgarian Jews, who lived in these areas <coughs> that were deported and, and murdered. So then there's the people who got uh, killed by the regime, by the fascist regime, people who were partisans who were murdered on an individual base. So we cannot exactly count all the numbers, but it's somewhere at least about 11,500 people that Bulgaria is responsible for deporting and their death. But it's not only that. Bulgaria's army was the occupying force in Serbia. Serbia was not annexed by Bulgaria. They were just functioning as the occupying force there. In Serbia, the Holocaust started very early, and especially the extermination of all the Jews by... if. Yugoslavia was, the war started on April 6, 1941. By December 41, there were no Jews, Jewish men alive. And by mid-1942, the Germans have declared Serbia as Juden and uh, Zigeuner Rhein. Uh, and no Romas and no Jews left in Serbia. This is by June 1942. The Bulgarian army and uh, intelligence were those who were keeping the security in Serbia during this time. And they were those who were interrogating the people who the Nazis wanted and were basically doing the policing. And even though not involved directly in killing, were the supportive power behind the murder of the Serbian Jews too. So there's a lot, there's a lot to uncover. And I want to say that there is a denial of any Bulgarian responsibility to what happened and to its political decisions or its actions during the war. And for me, all these years, being able to see people deny the facts that are visible made me suspicious about what are the things we don't know that they are hiding if they are denying the obvious. And so 
I think that there's a lot more to research. I think that the Bulgarian uh, involvement in Serbia is something that needs to be thoroughly investigated. I hope some military historians will take the time for it. I hope that there's a lot more war crimes that were not researched and were hushed, and, and I hope they will be. For example, I, I want to say something about the difference between studying in archives for documents and going in the fields to research. I, there was a concentration camp that was um, erected in Bulgaria for the leaders of the Jewish community. <clears throat> it was uh, right near the Danube in a place called Somovit. It's a camp that the, the inmates had to build their own concentration camp. And it was near the Danube. There were three boats in the Danube waiting to somehow take them, but uh, that did not happen. And right in that spot uh, is the place where Bulgarian and German forces would stop boats of refugees coming from Western Europe, from Austria, from Serbia. People were trying to escape the Holocaust and use the, the Danube River to reach to the Black Sea and from there to escape to Israel. Those boats would be stopped right there near the place where the camp was, and were not allowed to continue. These were boats that sometimes had a thousand people or 1,500 people on top of them, and they stayed there for weeks without water, without food. So during the day, you hear those people cry, and then at night, they try to jump in the water, and then they're being shot, and there are thousands and thousands of people that have disappeared in this area. And I hope that one day there will be some underwater excavations, some other kind of a searching to see how many people to find, to maybe even retrieve the bodies that are in the bottom of the river there. These are war crimes that nobody talks about, nobody speaks about, and nobody knows about. I was lucky to, when I went to visit the camp, I met a few villagers and the villagers were telling me a story about boats sinking there. And there was no record of Jews being deported and then the boats were sinking because the Jews were deported, part of them were deported via Danube boats. But all those boats reached their destination. And I was not sure what this story was. And then I got to talk to an inmate in the camp. And I asked him about these boats. And he says, yes, I'm so happy you asked me. And he told me the story of how those boats would arrive there, not be able to continue, and how they would cry all day long, and how the inmate could not fall asleep from all the crying and the shooting and this terrible tragedy happening in front of their eyes. Another concentration camp that's described in the book is Kailaka. What Kailaka. Were Can you describe conditions there? Where was it located? Can you tell us about its history? Yes. Uh, after Somovit, after the camp in Somovit was closed, 
uh, the inmates were moved to another place, more inland, uh, near Pleven. They also had to build their, their own barracks there. And it was two, a two-barrack kind of a camp. Uh, there were 120 people who were held there. Most of them were families of, uh, of people who were in the, in the underground, people who were partisans. Usually, if somebody was a partisan, then his entire family would be arrested uh, and that's this type of people who were held there. There were babies, there were others. The regime was was harsh. There was a sadistic commander in the camp, and uh, Mr. Zimriliev, and he was the the head of the, the he was the commander camp, and he was a sadist. He would tear uh, the letters of the inmates when they received them from their family. He would force the people to dance to the music that he was playing, and it was not a happy dance. And also there was a big fire in the camp. I think the, the reason for the, the fire was basically an accident, uh, but the hut was kind of very inflammable and, and things went on fire real quick uh, when at night, a mom tried to change the diapers of a baby and the candle fell off and burned the place down. The commander wouldn't allow the people to come out. So somehow they managed to overcome him and come out, but there were 11 people who, who died in this fire and uh, some others were, were injured. So it was one of those un unhappy tragedies. There were a bunch of those. There were boats that would sink with people who were pushed away. There was all the time, even though, I mean, it was not as murderous as in other places, there were all the time bad things going on and people dying from one reason or another in Bulgaria during the war. Uh, another subject, by the way, that is not really discussed, and I have seen this, it's something to, that's the next stages of research that are needed. Uh, child and baby mortality during the war in Bulgaria and in the first year after the war. You, you, when you interview families and you ask them about members of the family, many times they keep forgetting telling you about those who were babies and died as babies or died in birth. And there's a lot of these cases during the war in Bulgaria. So I hope that's something that needs to be researched. I, I see my role as also somebody who uh, can maybe trigger or motivate other people to do, to do the research. The work that I did was mostly finding testimonies and collecting the testimonies to different relevant periods, places in the in the history. And so I felt that is a missing, was a missing element in the study of what happened in Bulgaria. Your your book also describes the veteran labor camp. Can you tell us about it? The veteran well, there were there were 
labor camps all over Bulgaria. Bulgaria drafted all the, the, the Jews to labor camp. Uh, the first year they were drafted as soldiers. Then uh, German protested they didn't want to see Jews in uniforms. So the next year it was moved under the Ministry of Public uh, Works. And then the Jews uh, had to bring their own working clothes and, and so on. Uh, conditions were physically hard. The, the physical work they built, they were repairing uh, roads and, and train tracks. Uh, the one in veteran is actually towards the end of the war. It's in 1943. It's somewhere near between Plovdiv and Sofia, the two big cities. And uh, they were basically building a, 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 a road there. But the Jews were used not just to build road, but to build also bridges, levees, things like that. They were trying to upgrade the infrastructure. Some of it was old train tracks that were the narrow gorge, also because of corruption, sometimes of 40 years earlier or 50 years earlier, Bulgaria had a substandard train system that did not use the same, the same size of rails as in other countries. So this was an attempt to upgrade strategically Bulgaria systems so you can connect the trains from Bulgaria to other places. So this is what the Jews uh, did. Uh, the conditions were, you know, it was a hard physical labor. It was not meant to kill them. It was not a, 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 a killing camp, but it was a, a, a forced labor camp with some, sometimes, you know, can be a little physical abuse. Food was terrible. And they worked there from, uh, depends on what year, but usually when they started, but usually they ended up around Christmas time when the ground was frozen and you couldn't, you couldn't dig anymore the ground. Can you tell us about the fate of the Roma and Sinti in Bulgaria during the Holocaust? What happened to them? Can you describe their plight? Yeah, the Roma and Sinti are are discriminated as uh, as as a as a usual kind of a behavior in Bulgaria, but the the anti the the anti-Jewish legislation did not include Roma people. The anti-Jewish uh, uh, laws in Bulgaria were against Judaism, uh, Masonism, and uh, Sorry, and plutocratia. It was. It did not have a racial side to it. Mm -hmm. It was based on the on the Nazi racial theory. So, so Roma were left out of the anti-Jewish laws. So during the Holocaust, you know, besides being second or third class citizens, nothing uh, sort of was organized to hurt them systematically, unlike the Jews, who were pushed into ghettos, who were not able to exercise their profession, who were taxed and exploited, taken to labor camps, some were pushed out of the country if they didn't have a, 
the right documentation and so on. What happened to the Jews of Thrace during the Holocaust? Can you tell us about their fate and their plight? Well, the Jews of, faith, of, of Thrace are, are part of these, there were about 4,000 and maybe more, a little more than 4,000 Jews who lived in, in Thrace. That's where the Bulgarians have made uh, a big ethnic cleansing on the Greek population. Those Jews were first uh, annexed, then were taken to labor camps. They were wearing the Jewish star and then they were denied. Bulgaria at some point uh, issued a decree that in March 1943, all people living in these occupied territories in Thrace, but also in Western Macedonia, uh, sorry, Eastern Macedonia, that all these Jews, uh, all the people there will become Bulgarian citizens. And those who will not be Bulgarian citizens cannot remain there. Jews were denied the option of becoming Bulgarian citizens. So nine months before the deportation, the legal system was prepared and the legal setting was prepared for their deportation in March. Uh, and so this was basically the plan and they were those who were the first who were deported. They were deported first and put in tobacco warehouse on March 3rd, 1943, which used to be, which actually was a Bulgarian holiday, the national holiday. And uh, they were held in tobacco warehouses for a few nights in the cities where they were rounded up. Then they were taken by trains to two cities within Bulgaria, Gorna Jumaya and Dukmitsa, where they were also kept in, in a yard, in a labor, in a, in a, and in a tobacco warehouse. And after being there for about 14 days, they were loaded on the train, taken to the Danube and uh, loaded on Danube ships and from then to Vienna and then by trains from Vienna to Katowice and to and to Treblinka, ultimately where they were murdered upon arrival. I don't know if you know about Treblinka, but Treblinka had a system that was called like the pipe, and the people would get off the train and be beaten up into going into a narrow kind of a path that ended in the gas chamber, and they were beaten up all the way there and murdered upon arrival. Another concentration camp you mentioned in the book is Cheshma. Can you tell us about it? What were conditions like there? I'm not sure about that. Cheshma? Cheshma? Cheshma. Cheshma. That's the tobacco of Cheshma, I think. Okay. Okay. Cheshma is, is faucet in Bulgarian. Okay. Tobacco of Cheshma is the faucet where you, where you wash the tobacco. Thank you. Can you tell us about your parents? What can you tell us about Ika, your mother, and Bitush, your father? My um, mother was born in Sofia to a family. Her father was a, a, a banker. They lived in the more, uh, I should say, integrated part of, of, of Sofia. They were well uh, to do. 
my mom uh, went and was allowed to study. She was she went to a to a school to study to be a, a kindergarten teacher. The head of the school was a progressive lady, and who accepted for student Jewish students, even though Jews were not allowed to be uh, to be students. And my mom was able to study early childhood education during the war. Uh, other than that, they were deported from where they lived into the ghetto, first in Sofia. Then they were deported to uh, Pleven. That was the attempt to deport, the second attempt to deport the Jews of Sofia. They were deported to Pleven, where they lived for a year and a half and tried to somehow manage, survive, get organized. The interesting thing about the community was relatively the high morale of the people. And the fact that they, even though they had it difficult, they were not dehumanized in a in a way that made them dysfunctional. And so they're they were able to mobilize and, and maintain a spirit. And so my mom was such a person, she was able to use her skills as a kindergarten teacher and organize a, a kindergarten for the refugees for, in the ghetto in Pleven. And that's where she was until the end of the war. And after the war, she went to study architecture where she met my father. And then a few years later, they came, they immigrated to Israel where I was born. My father was um, born in Sofia, but lived and grew up in Plovdiv, the second biggest city. His father was uh, a character. Uh, he was the head of Balkan Tabak, which is, the, he was the, the manager of the biggest industrial complex in the Balkans. And he was a, he was a character. Um, was very, very harsh kind of a persona. And the uh, owners of the company used to call him the dictator behind his back because he was such a authoritarian authoritarian personality. Uh, my father was uh, drafted to labor camp and was worked in a labor camp in 1941. Then in 40, no, in 42, he was drafted. And then in 43, he was injured in a train accident while being in the camp and uh, and I had, but I had to go back to the camp shortly after the injury and 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 work there he's they survived the war but and were young and were were kind of like cheerful people and optimistic but it was no fun to be either in a labor camp or in a ghetto or it was not good times my film, the current film that I finished, is tells. Uh, it's called Monument to Love, and it tells the story of my mom, and also has a lot of her wartime diary that she reads about her experiences and observations at that time, which is quite interesting to see the way how an eighteen-year-old uh, woman sees the war that's just beginning and realizing the 
terrible deteriorating path everything is on. Can you comment on King Boris III's relationship with Germany during World War II? Can you tell us about his treatment of Bulgaria's Jews? King Boris was not a... Uh, he was a calculated... He was a calculated and, and opportunistic person. All he cared was to preserve the monarchy, to gain back all the territories that Bulgaria under his father lost to uh, Greece, to Yugoslavia, to Serbia, to Yugoslavia, to Romania, and um, and he didn't want to get involved in the war. He was really trying to have these three goals uh, for for him. So he managed to do that. And what was easy relatively to give was uh, the Jews. And so Bulgaria was initiating sometimes the handing over of the Jews rather than the Germans pressuring Bulgaria. The king was very close with Hitler, was allied, was enjoying all the all the perks of this connection. And uh, at some point, he was he was called by Hitler used to call him the fox because he's like with his tail wiping the tracks that he leaves behind. And so he did not leave a lot of records behind him, but there are a few that are not very complimenting. So for example, after the first deportation was stalled and not all the people were deported, uh, the Bulgarian church was very much involved in trying to defend the Jews. And he summoned them, the heads of the Bulgarian church, and gave them a very anti-Semitic speech about how the Jews are a problem everywhere and cause trouble and war and uh, how all the countries in Europe have found ways to deal with the Jewish problems and that Bulgaria is doing the same and the church should uh, lay along. And so that's that's basically him. He had uh, a not a very good heart. He had a heart disease that was for many years, and he died from a from a heart attack. Uh, that then later was uh, there were attempts to kind of make it a more glorified death rather than dying by a heart attack, and so being poisoned by Hitler for not handing over the Jews or something else sounds uh, appropriately heroic for a king. Um, the king died unexpectedly or died from a heart attack in, on 1943. If he would have made it to 1944, he wouldn't, they would probably, the, the wartime, the, the past wartime tribunal that they had would have probably uh, cost him his life. So by dying prematurely, he spared himself from being executed. What role did the Bulgarian Orthodox Church play in the Holocaust in Bulgaria. Bulgarian, the Bulgarian Orthodox Church played a major and untypical role uh, comparing to other places. They were very much involved in both uh, trying to oppose the anti-Jewish legislation when it came, and also were very much in uh, 
in defending and protecting the, the Jewish population. There were 11 metropolitan bishops to the church, and all of them were opposing the anti-Jewish uh, policies and the attempt to deport the Jews, uh, especially uh, our neophyte of uh, Vidin, uh, Metropolit Stefan of Sofia, and Metropolit Kirill of Plovdiv were uh, the most, uh, I would say, impactful while uh, the Metropolit Stefan of Sofia was trying to to meet the king, to try and stop and stall the, the planned deportations, sorry, to stall the planned deportations. Then they tried to stall again the second attempt at deportations. The head of the church in Plovdiv, Metropolitan Kirill, when the Jews were rounded up, in a school in December 10th, 1943. He went to the school, he got in there, and he told three different things at that day. To the Jews, he said, don't worry, I'm with you. If they take you, I'll go with you. To the head of the police, he said, he said he's going to lie in front of the train tracks and will not allow the trains to go. And to the palace in Sofia, he said that if the Jews are deported, he's going to take with his people to the mountains and they will rebel. So he he said whatever he needed to say everywhere in order to stall and stop the deportation. And indeed, after these people were rounded up and spent a whole day uh, in that schoolyard, they were sent home. So... Uh, the relationship between Christians and Jews were extremely good. There used to be exchanges of visits around high holidays, and there were courteous relationship between Jews and, and Bulgarian uh, religious leaders. And so once the political situation became turbulent, you could count on your relationship and on your friendships. And, and if anything was if anything was the reason why the Jews of Bulgaria were able to survive, I would say it's the friendship. Much friendship between individuals who were able to mobilize their friend to act, and then also with the institutions. But mostly it's really the relationship and the friendship that was the most dominant in installing the deportations. And you comment on the relationship between Bulgaria and other members of the Axis or other countries allied to Germany. For example, can you comment on the relationship between Bulgaria and Romania under Antonescu, or the relationship between Bulgaria and Italy under Mussolini, or between Bulgaria and Croatia under Antipavlic? What were the dynamics of Bulgaria's relationships with these countries? I think these countries were, were only secondary in the mm -hmm. in the in, in in the foreign politics. They were on the same side, so they had, you know, Germany forced Romania to give back the area of Dobruja to Bulgaria in the Karyova Agreement in 1940. Uh 
So that's the the thing from Romania, but either that there's not much of a of a exchange. I can only compare the conditions under these places. So if we compare the conditions from all the allies, Bulgaria was the one that was the most eager to hand over its Jews. For example, I told you the story of the Jews who lived in Germany and France who were Bulgarian citizens and that Bulgaria allowed Germany to deport them already in 1942. Italy did not allow that and Romania did not allow this and also Hungary did not. Bulgaria was the only country who allowed Germany to deport its foreign citizens uh, its citizens abroad and did not mind or did not care and didn't want to hear about that. Just say deport them. There is documentation for that. So also, but you see, Bulgaria is always being spoken about how there was no Holocaust in Bulgaria, which is a lie. But if you were a Jew in Albania, you were much safer if you were a Jew in Bulgaria. If you managed to escape to Albania, you were already in good shape. Or if you were under the Italian, uh, under the Italian control in Macedonia, you are also safe. So uh, comparing Bulgaria to all the other allies, it's the only one that has an agreement to deport Jews. It's the only one that ended up really pushing towards it. So it's the image is much nicer than the reality. One personal story that you tell in the book is that of Israel Behar. Can you tell us about him? Can you share with us yeah. what he went through in the concentration camps, Bergen-Belsen and Threesenstadt, that he was sent to? Israel Behar was a young, young boy, I would say a teenager, in uh, Skopje, and he was deported with the Jews of Macedonia. Actually, he was supposed to be deported. He managed to somehow escape. He escaped to, uh, he did escape to Albania, but somehow things didn't, or Kosovo, and then he was handed over to the Nazis, and he ended up with his mom uh, in, a con in concentration camps where he worked hard physical labor and he also he was also liberated there and but he he lost his mom around the time of the liberation he tells horrific stories about really going to hell and back another story that is told in the book is that of jenny label what can you tell us about her and her family's lives jenny label uh grew up in Belgrade. Her father was uh, was an officer in the Serbian army, he was an engineer, and when the war began, she was 13 years old. Her father was drafted in the army and at some point became a prisoner of war and she has not seen him for four years until the end of the war. But she was there and she experienced the occupation and the beginning of the extermination of the Jews. And as a 13-year-old, she had an extremely good 
how shall I say, understanding of the severity of the situation. So when the Jews were ordered to report and, and be rounded up, uh, we're talking about her mother, her brother, her aunts, and so on, and grandma, she did not go with them. She escaped as a 13-year-old and did not go with her parents and then the other ones who were shortly after murdered. And so she somehow, as a 13-year-old, managed to escape, went to another town, found there uh, a former teacher of hers who was involved in the underground and somehow lived a little bit as a, an underground uh, life in, in niche, in this occupied Serbia. She was caught by the Bulgarian intelligence who was in command of these areas, was tortured, was abused. And then she started a whole, you know, she was being pushed from one labor camp to another, from one, one bed condition to another. She ended up in the SS, uh, in the Gestapo actually in Berlin. That's where she was in. She was basically waiting to be executed in Berlin. That's where, where she was when the war came to an end. She was liberated, then attacked by, by Russian soldiers and raped by Russian soldiers in Berlin. Then had a long, long, long way way of going back to Yugoslavia by train in the end of the war. And that's where she met her father again after the war. Later, she became a journalist and also was placed in some kind of a punitive colony on a bare island in the Adriatic because she laughed about a joke about the head of the Communist Party, Tito. And uh, she was told, as a journalist, she was told a joke of how Bulgaria won a prize in some kind of a flower competition because it had a flower that was the white rose of 100 kilos, which was the nickname of the Tito. And so she laughed, and then she ended up for a few years in jail for that. So her story is very tragic. She was a researcher of the Holocaust in uh, Yugoslavia and published uh, multiple books. And uh, she passed away about 11 years ago. Who is Alexander Belev? What can you tell us about him? Can you describe his story? You know, his story, but Alexander Belev was the Commissar of Jewish Affairs. He was one of the leaders of the, uh, the the Ratnik movement. Was one of the founders of it, and uh, he was an anti-Semite. He was a pro-Nazi. He was the person who drafted the anti-Jewish laws. He was the person who was sent to the Wannsee conference to be nearby when the whole plans of how to destroy the European juries was made. And he was then the commissar for Jewish affairs. He was highly motivated and he was uh, un he was an anti-Semite. So he 
was highly motivated to kill the Jews. He uh, he was caught in 1944 and uh, killed. I interviewed the person who killed him and who uh, who denied uh, killing him or meeting him, but in a way that was very revealing. People don't like to admit killing other people on camera. Can you tell us about Mordechai Arbel? He's described in some detail in your book. What does your book reveal about him? Mordechai Arbel was uh, a kid during the war and or before the war, and he actually left Bulgaria just in the last minute before the Germans walked in. So he was mostly... Uh, the stories that he could tell was about how friends protected his family when there were riots once, about his involvement. I mean, also, he was uh, very close to his grandparents, so he was close to tradition and religion and rituals. So he was, uh, he lived a very comfortable life, and then they really left on time to go to Israel, and that's where he was during the war. Mordechai researched a lot the Sephardic Jewry, especially the Jews of the Caribbeans, wrote a few books. He was a diplomat and, uh, and a businessman. Another individual in the book that you describe is Rudy Abarbanel. What can you tell us about him and his Rudy story? Abar yeah, Rudy Abarbanel was um, from Pirot. It's a Serbian town. When it was occupied, he was taken with all the other Jews to a labor camp, and he basically learned Bulgarian in the camp from being in, with the Bulgarian Jews in the same camp. Uh, during the deportations, he was taken together with his family, with his grandparents, his, his parents, and he spent uh, three nights on a train uh, heading from Pirot somehow towards the Danube, where the Jews were loaded on Danube boats, on river boats, and taken up the stream. He managed to jump out of the train and then managed to escape all the way through um, Albania and 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 uh, through through Macedonia, through Albania, through Bulgaria, he managed to escape to the Holy Land in the middle of the war. His story is really it's like a story for a movie because of all the adventures along the way that he has experienced and are very revealing of the times and the conditions. It's Rudia Barbanel was a very nice person. And um, I was lucky to have met him, one of the very, very few who survived the deportation because he jumped out of the train. Who is Marco Baruch? What can you tell us about him? Your book notes his relationship with Theodore Herzl. Can you elaborate? Well, he didn't have a good relationship with Theodore Herzl. was afraid of him. Uh, Yosef Marco Baruch was a, a young and, and, and idealistic uh, teacher, actually, and he uh, had the idea that the Jews should uh, fight the Ottoman Empire 
and try and establish by force of weapon and by alliance with the West uh, uh, a Jewish state. Um, so he was uh, he was a little bit ahead of the time of his time. He was a little radical and also a romantic. And uh, in many, many places, he was not liked, and he was kicked out of many, many places, from North Africa to France. To... He was really not liked because he was scaring the orthodoxy. Somehow he managed to arrive to Bulgaria and find some people who liked his ideas and published some of his uh, of his writings. Herzl was afraid of him because he was so flamboyant. He ended up uh, killing himself uh, at age 27 in front of the, you know, because of some kind of unfulfilled love in Italy. So he was a romantic person. He was a pioneer in a way of, 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 of militant Zionism when Zionism was not that militant in just in the beginning. Who is Victor Shemtov? Can you tell us a bit about him? Victor Shemtov was a prominent Bulgarian Jewish politician in Israel who had immigrated from Bulgaria in the mid-30s and was a, a minister of multiple posts in different Israeli governments was a very nice and dignified person. And so that's Victor Shemtov. Speaking of Israel, can you comment on the significance of the Holocaust in Bulgarian-Israeli relations? What role does Holocaust memory play in the bilateral relationship between the two countries? The Holocaust was compromised for Israel foreign policies. So nobody will, nobody will, how should I say, confront the Bulgarian official attempts to deny the Holocaust and to tell the story in 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 just a positive spin, forgetting all the bad stuff. So in a way, Israel being interested in its foreign relationship is much more that's the that's the priority so the holocaust is secondary we're going to have a conference in the end of may in jerusalem with the advashem it's going to be the first conference that the advashem organizes on the subject of the holocaust in bulgaria and uh, I, I happen to be the programmer of this conference and uh, I also initiated it, but it's the first time ever that Yad Vashem gives attention to the Bulgarian story. And so Amazing. the story, yeah, the story is, is, is dominated by myths, dominated by exploitation, political and others. And, um, and I'm very glad that finally we're going to talk about what happened there because all Bulgarian ambassadors, they would like to celebrate how great Bulgaria is and how wonderful they are and that Bulgarians are better than any other people because they're so good. And I have no problem with preaching good examples and showing good examples so that other people become good. But 
lying about the fact and not seeing the full picture is quite a problem. And so I have problem with this propagandistic attempt to try and paint Bulgaria as different. Partially, it's also the fear that they will have to pay reparations. So that makes them all denial. But I don't respect I don't respect lying. That's all I can say. How did Jews survive under the communist regime in Bulgaria? Can you comment on the communist government's attitude, policies, and treatments toward Jews? I, I don't know if it was specifically against Jews, but it was so oppressive against uh, thing against the people and against any free thinking. I know I know of people from a music band who were telling jokes and ended up in a concentration camp and dying in a concentration camp because of telling jokes. So I cannot tell specifically about the how Jews were treated by the communists. Some were integrated, some were part of, of the regime, but all in all, the regime was a terrible, oppressive for Jews and non-Jews alike. Can you tell us about Nisim Tsion? Who was he? Why was he notable? Daniel Tsion. Yes, I, I I recorded Daniel Nisim Tsion from the book. Okay. Daniel Tsion was a rabbi who organized a unique event, a demonstration against deportation that took place on May 24, 1943, when the Jews of Sofia were supposed to be deported out of the country. And he uh, have, uh, I think the idea came from some uh, communistic organizer and there was organization within the, the Jewish community. There were a lot of communists that were also active in trying to make this demonstration happen. And there was this demonstration, this anti-deportation demonstration that was broken up by the police. It was in a holiday. The idea was to try and clash with the marching of students. It's the day of the Bulgarian culture. And the idea was to try and, and reach with the demonstration, the area where the students were marching so that uh, this will kind of like raise attention to the plight of the Jews. They were not allowed to go very far after five or six blocks of marching. They were attacked by police on horseback and 400 people were arrested that day. After a few days, 120 of them were sent to some of it to the concentration camp where there were boats waiting to deport them, but somehow did not. That's the so he was a unique person. He was a mystic person. He was had a lot of Christian friends and was uh, associated also with a movement called the Denovists and the and 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 the leader Denov and. Uh, he was a spiritual guy and not exactly your typical orthodox uh, kind of uh, rabbi. Uh, the demonstration was was not necessarily supported by the Jewish establishment who, that hoped that he will not that they will find other ways to 
canceled the deportations and didn't want it to be a counterproductive thing, but it took place anyway. That's Daniel Tsion. Thank you. Can you tell us about Professor Dalia Ofer of Hebrew University? What is unique about her perspectives on the history of Bulgaria's Jews? Well, Dalia Ofer was in the committee that was established by the KKL, KNKM, to examine. There was an attempt to commemorate the king in Israel. That's uh, part of the attempt to bring also his son back to become a king in Bulgaria after the fallen communism. So there was a lot of uh, uh, attempts to try and make the king a rescuer. And um, there was a big fundraising and everyone was talking about the Bulgarian Schindler. A totally fabricated story. And uh, as part of this activity, a monument was erected in Israel thanking the king and the queen for rescuing the Jews. There was a big outcry of the Jewish community and also in the families and people from the victims of the Holocaust in Bulgaria. And uh, Dalia Offer was in a committee that was formed to examine it. It was also headed by a a former judge, uh, Judge Besky, who was also a person who was the head of the Righteous Gentile Committee at Yad Vashem, and himself a, a Schindler survivor. Uh, a third person on the committee was Loba Eliav, a, a very progressive and uh, politician. And the committee with uh, Dalia Offer, as a member of it, she's an historian, has decided to take down those commemoration and just, you know, put the plaque that commemorates the victims and another plaque that kind of is grateful to those who helped the Jews, but not the king, but those who did help. She also wrote an article about about it and about the lack of testimony, about the lack of voices. And our book corresponds a little bit with this article because we really try to provide the voices of the people and to give people the voice, the victims, uh, those that, that their voice was silenced, that their voices were were hidden, where voices were denied, and those who died who didn't really have a voice. Who was Vera Mileva Kocheva? What can you tell us about her and her story? Vera Mileva Kocheva was a friend with a Jewish woman named Rachel Alkalai, and she was involved in trying to hide her Jewish friends when they were afraid of being arrested. And so she hid people in a house. Actually, she hid the sister of Victor Shento that you mentioned before. Uh, the two sisters of Victor Shento found shelter and were hiding for a few weeks in their, in her apartment. Can you tell us about Saba Ivanov? Why is he important in Bulgaria's relationship with Germany? I, I think he was the uh, representative in, in Serbia, the 
He was the, the military representative in, in Belgrade. He's, uh, he's the one who probably would give all the information and Bulgaria knew about the final solution and what's happening in these territories because he was basically the, the representative there. So the attempts to try and say, oh, we didn't know anything. Bulgaria, there was no Holocaust. All these all these stupid lies that are based on nothing are this is part of the of the net of the net of connection that shows how Bulgaria was informed at the time. Another individual I'd be curious to ask you, okay, is Dr. Emmanuel Margalit. What can you tell us about him? Emmanuel Margalit was one of the young leaders. Uh, of uh, Apoela Sail, it was a socialistic movement, and he uh, he was a physician actually, and he uh, was in a labor camp, um, and also happened to be the translator of Ben Gurion when Ben Gurion visited Bulgaria in the end of October nineteen. 19- Forty-four. Bulgaria was the first place that um, Ben Gurion went after the war, and uh, he tried to also go to Romania, but was not allowed to go there. And so he was for a few weeks in Bulgaria, and he met all kinds of people. He traveled, he spoke, he managed to inspire people, and and Margolis was his translator. That's what I can tell you about them, Kumargolis. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I wanted to thank you for your erudition and generosity with the responses you provided. And to close, I would just like to ask you, what are you working on next as your current project? What are you working on now? Because I finished yesterday, and I hope I finished yesterday, a film that I labored over the last... More than 10 years, I wanted to do it, or more, actually 12 years, and uh, was kind of a slow process. So I'm glad that this is over, and the next thing I'm doing, I'm trying to create a video about the demonstration that took place in 1943, and it's going to be a shorter film. But uh, I'm a juggler of multiple projects, and uh, I'm interested in writing a little bit fiction around that era because it's fiction allows you to go into much more detail in describing everyday life. But um, I also have um, other tasks ahead of me and let's continue to preserve my archives and collections. I have over 10,000 photographs. I filmed hundreds of hours of video. So part of it is really making sure it's all preserved, accessible. And I'm working on this conference in Israel in May where experts from all over the world are coming to tell about the Holocaust in Bulgaria. And uh, it's going to be the first of its kind where so many people from all over the world are coming together and uh, are going to share their knowledge. And I hope it is going to be a contribution that will change 
the momentum of this propaganda that permanently tries to make Bulgaria what it wasn't and, and painting it in pink colors where there shouldn't be any. Or wish- let's say the kind people should be definitely uh, mentioned and the goodness of people and the action of friends should be uh, the one that, that needs to be uh, given credit for protecting their friends and neighbors, but not the country. I wish you the very best of luck in such projects. They are truly noble and necessary initiatives. I'm truly grateful that you are engaging in such work. Thank you. And I, you know, I'm not maybe the best storyteller in life. And it's early in the morning, so sometimes we need the energy to tell. So I hope it works for you and it's usable for you, the interview. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm tremendously grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you.